You're listening to Law, Life and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHH LP 103.5 FM. Good afternoon. I'm Betsy Kim. Today in the studio, we have Yale University history professor Timothy Snyder. Professor Snyder received his bachelor's degree from Brown University and his doctorate from Oxford. He speaks five and reads 10 European languages and is a prolific author with publications including five award-winning books. His most recent book, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, has been on both the Washington Post and New York Times bestseller lists. On Tyranny shows how history is not just stories and facts of the past, but relevant and very much a part of current history and how it unfolds, or arguably, as he presents in his book, how we, people living today, choose its course. Professor Schneider, welcome to Law, Life, and Culture. Glad to talk to you. Can you sum up in a few sentences the crux of what your book is about and why you wrote it? Probably not. Uh, It'll take probably more than a few. I, I wrote the book because I'm an American, and the book is a kind of homecoming. What I've spent my life becoming is a historian of Eastern and Central Europe. So I've learned the languages, as you said. I've spent a lot of time with sources, Jewish sources, Ukrainian sources, Polish sources, Russian sources, trying to get my mind around just how it could be that there could be such enormous political disasters, atrocities, such as the Holocaust, such as Soviet terror. That's what I am. That's what I've become. That's, in a way, how I see the world. In order to become that person, I had to have teachers, people older than myself, who had lived through communism, often, as it turned out, had lived through as young people, national socialism or fascism, too. And because of them, I have the distinct sense that it can happen and it can happen to people like us. Because after all, if we can learn from people, then they're not so different from ourselves and they're not so distant from ourselves. And then in the last few years, I've had students of my own from Eastern Europe who, as they've come of age, the promise of democracy that we made after 1989 has not been fulfilled. Instead, it's receded. So those are where I'm coming from. I'm coming from the history that I think I understand. I'm coming from the teachers who lived through that history And then I'm coming from the students who have seen democracy fade. So I think I understand some things about what it's like when a republic falls. And what I was trying to do when I wrote the book was to bring that home to Americans because I care about this place um, and because I have this idea that we should all do the little thing that we can do. And this is the little thing that I can do. Your book was published in February 2017, but written well before Donald Trump was inaugurated as president of the United States. It's applicable to many concerns swirling around his presidency, his assault on the credibility of the press, the nepotism with his daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared in governmental appointments, his firing of governmental officials such as Preet Bharara, Sally Yates, and James Comey. A lot of what seems quite relevant to your book had not yet happened at the time you were writing it. Did you predict things would unfold in this direction? Well, uh, obviously I did. Um, (laughs) but, But I guess I would make a broader point, which is that I'm trying to claim that history is useful for us to make sense of the present. You know, many times it doesn't matter whether we can make sense of the the world around us because we're we're concerned with things that are personal. Everything in the society may seem to us to be basically okay. But there are other times when we really have to grasp what's happening. And then it can turn out that um, it's important that we don't understand. It can turn out that we're bombarded with all kinds of information we don't know how to sift through. It can turn out that the very people who are trying to ruin our world 
are also the ones who are providing us with this overwhelming dose of, of information. And that's where history comes in, because history can give us a sense of patterns and a sense of concepts and a sense of what's likely to come together and what's also not likely to come together. So obviously in my book, I, I didn't write, Donald Trump is going to fire James Comey, right? I, it's not a prediction in the sense of an oracle, but I think because I have the sense of what sorts of things are possible, my, imagine, my political imagination is broader than that of many Americans, and so none of this surprises me. And it is, I mean, as you say, it is striking how pretty much every day something happens in the world that fits one or the other of the 20 lessons in the book. You never write the name Donald Trump in your book. Why is that? Well, uh, th- there, are, uh, there are a few reasons. The, the first is that I, I, it's very easy to get caught up in the personal and to imagine that if somehow you properly characterize the personality, then the problem will go away, right? So Americans do this all the time with historical figures. We like to say that Hitler was crazy. Okay, maybe in some sense he was crazy, but that doesn't rescue you know the tens of millions of people who died in the Second World War. Um, it's probably true that with Mr. Trump, there is some kind of psychopathology as well, but w- where does that get us? There can be a certain illusion that so long as we get the personality right, or if we if we say make the right joke or say the right dismissive thing, somehow the problem goes away. And it doesn't. He's president of the United States. So what I was trying to focus on was was something else, namely what we can do. So what we don't want to do is just talk about the problem and then get exhausted and withdraw back into private life. What we want to do instead is to be able to realize what our own possibilities and so what the book lays down are 20 ways in which pretty much any of us, pretty much all the time, can make, can make a difference. So the, the basic answer to your question is that it's not really about him. It's really about us. And we're not going to solve the problem by raging at him or tweeting at him. We're, we're going we're gonna to solve the problem by transforming ourselves and transforming the people around ourselves. And that, that might sound simple, but y- you have to get started somewhere. And, and the advantage that history gives is that you can see that people who were facing much more difficult circumstances thought those circumstances through and came up with really intelligent recommendations. And all we have to do is reach back to them. You see, because we're not going to get advice from the daily cable news. We're just going to get overwhelmed. To get advice, we have to go back and read what thoughtful people left for us. We have to take advantage of the generosity of people who suffered more than we did and are wiser than we are. But some people still support Donald Trump. What is the real threat that you feel he poses to this country? I mean, those are two completely different things. The fact that people support something doesn't mean that it's not a threat, right? I mean, there's two completely different things. Mr. Mr. Trump poses a threat to the United States because, A, he's not fit um, intellectually or in any other way. To, to, to run an organization as complicated as the federal government. I mean, that's I, fr- frankly obvious to everybody, including most of his supporters. Um, and that itself is a problem. But B, he's a danger because he has no identification with, as far as I can make out, the interests of the United States or its citizens. There's nothing in his entire biography or in any of his actions which suggests that he's actually ever thought about what was good for the United States or its citizens. And then most threatening of all is the fact that um, in addition to being incompetent and uncaring, he doesn't seem to identify with any of the basic traditions. He doesn't identify with the rule of law. Instead, he's had a whole series of runs with the law. That's basically his whole adult life. Um, he doesn't identify with republics. 
Instead, he admires foreign dictators. Pretty much everyone whose name he has pronounced with admiration or envy or awe is a foreign dictator who's done away with the rule of law. And the way he expresses himself, whether it's about journalists or about judges um, or about pretty much any other subject, including the law, um, it makes it very clear that the American, his imagination, is an authoritarian country. I take seriously what he says. Uh, the question is, you know, wh- what can be done to prevent the world in his mind from becoming the world as it actually is? I must admit, your book, on occasion, emotionally caused my eyes to well up a little with tears because it gave me this sense that no matter how much negativity or injustice transpires in the world on monumental scales of horror and tragedy, historically, time and time again, everyday people show the sense, the courage, the integrity, and moral rectitude to do the right thing, to try to make the world a better place for more people as opposed to a few. Was that a point, that optimism, something your years of research also concluded and something you wanted to convey in your book? It's, it's not, if it's optimism, it's very cautious optimism. Um, I mean, first of all, what I'm trying to show is that some people in the darkest of times understood the situation structurally well enough to offer good advice. They may have done the right thing, but they didn't, they didn't always succeed. And so the whole point of the book is to say, let us take this dark experience, let's compress it into a very short read, and then let's use it quickly. Um, let's, let's take advantage of the fact that others have gone further down this road um, with, with, with their light, and let's bring that light back to us and use it now when it matters. So um, I'm, I'm trying to make it clear that we don't have to live just in this everyday horizon where we just look around at each other and we get all of our emotions and our facts and our plans from each other, that we can also cast lines backward towards the past, um, make connections with people in the past who have, who, have, who, have, who have acted properly and intelligently in difficult situations, make that connection, feel their influence towards us, and then act towards the future in that way, rather than just being overwhelmed by, by the day-to-day. Now, this, this business of time is also really important because the, 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 the point of learning from history is to, is to prevent things from happening. The book is meant to be a kind of self-defeating prophecy. I don't want the worst things that I talk about to happen. But in order, in order to work in that way, we have to act really quickly. We have to take the things that people learned at various points in these authoritarian transitions and, and learn from them fast and, and act at the beginning, which is why the very first lesson of the book is don't don't obey in advance. Um, figure out what's important for yourself. Uh, don't drift with everyone else. Make some kind of a personal stand, and then you can do other things. Many Americans only imagine governmental oppression in other countries with often a violent military coup. They think of governmental threats as the Cultural Revolution in China or something hard to imagine in the United States. However, you pointed out that tyrannical leadership often has popular support. For example, Hitler was voted into office. How is it misguided to think we cannot lose our democracy without some violent civil warfare? Okay, so there are two different points in there, and I'm going to address them both. The first is the idea that somehow in America things are better because we're, we're, we're America. And, and, and here, you know, we, we tend to be pretty provincial in our history, so the, the whole notion that America has been a democracy for 200 years is like that's something that like one you know white man says to another white man 
and the other white man nods. You know, I mean, women have been able to vote for about a century, African-Americans for about half a century. And we, we haven't in the last, you know, in the last quarter century, we haven't been moving towards democracy. We've been moving away even before this election by inviting money into politics, by, by, the, by the extreme gerrymandering, by the voter suppression laws. We've actually been moving away from democracy in this country. So this whole, the story of that, like America's a democracy, therefore it will be a democracy, is, is, is ahistorical and self-congratulating. And it's also harmful because America, what, what American exceptionalism does is that it blinds people and renders them, um, it renders them numb at the moment when they need to be the, their most sensitive. Because if you, say it, if you say it can't happen here, you're wasting the moment where you can stop it from happening here. Or even more, you're actually helping to make it happen. Because at, the, at this moment, I don't mean you personally, Betsy, but <laughs> at this moment, um, you're either doing something this way or you're doing something this way. And if you say it can't happen here, it can't happen in America, you're actually helping it to happen along. Which leads me to the second part of your question about the voting. Uh, it's tr- Hitler wasn't directly voted into power. His 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 govern his party won an election, which made him a plausible candidate for chancellor. A, a month into his his rule as chancellor, um, there was a there was a terrorist attack on the German parliament, which he then used to change the regime to an authoritarian regime. So elections are important in there. I'm just trying to I'm just being historically pedantic. It's 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 it, your point is very well taken. Most of the authoritarian regimes that exist now in the world started with an election. So um, the, the fact that someone is elected is itself no guarantee that elections will continue or that democratic elections will continue. Usually the way it goes now is that someone comes to power by way of elections and elections continue, but each time there's something more false about them until they become a kind of farcical ritual. Um, usually they're, they're still held regularly, but by the end of it, everybody knows they don't mean anything and, and that's the end of the story. Now, your book struck me as having points to make to three groups of people, all of whom I hope would be in our audience and will stay with us and hear you out. Let's first talk about group one. These are people who are alarmed by what is happening, but many feel discouraged. Some people feel, you know, I can protest, I can see things that I feel are wrong, but that's where my role seems to end, as long as people like Jeff Sessions and the Republican majority in Congress support Donald Trump, even with the appointment of Robert Mueller, nothing will happen. But was the appointment of Mueller as the special counsel to oversee investigation into Russian connections to the Trump campaign a game changer? Okay, again, there's a lot going on in that question. So I want to. So let me try to bring the end of the question up together with the beginning of the question. The fact that something like the appointment of a special prosecutor uh, can happen is 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 a result of the action of thousands and probably millions of people. The, the way that people behave changes the general atmosphere of politics. If we all say, oh, well, because Jeff Sessions is attorney general, nothing good will happen, then there won't be a Russia investigation, right? Why would there be? Jeff Sessions certainly doesn't want there to be one. He fired, he fired James Comey. He, Sessions lied about his own contacts with the Russians. He perjured himself at his own confirmation hearing. So, why, so if we just say, well, nothing we do really matters, um, then we're then we're actually then we're making a difference, but a difference in the wrong direction. So, what I would what the, the general advice that the book gives is that there are lots of little things that one can do that have political significance or civic significance, even if one doesn't immediately say so. So, just subscribing to a newspaper, for example, makes it more likely that there'll be a special prosecutor because the, everything we know about this administration we know from investigative reporters. Without newspapers, there are no investigative reporters. How are there newspapers? Because we subscribe. 
right? It's a very simple thing to subscribe to a newspaper, and it actually makes makes a great deal of, of difference. Now, whether Mueller is a game changer or not, I mean, let me just, rather than getting too much into the day-to-day, minute-to-minute, let me just make a basic point. The way that Mr. Trump campaigned was by way of, of fiction. I mean, pretty much the whole thing, the man, every, most of the things the man said in 2016, if you try to evaluate them as factual claims, are just not true. And most of his campaign promises are going to be unfulfilled. Um, he, 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 he works in a very Russian mode, in fact, which is the attempt to create a kind of alternative reality where people feel comfortable and at home and therefore act in a certain way. Um, but that alternative reality then generally has very weak connections with, with the facts on the ground, which is why he's so hostile to facts. The, and the, 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 the whole Russia issue is really an issue about factuality, and this is where Mueller comes in. Because if there's an investigation, a real one, I mean, not one with like a few, a few house staffers who don't know Russia and working part-time, but if there's a real investigation, the facts will eventually pile up. That's the problem, um, because the facts are there. There's so much we know already about this. I mean, it, it, Mr. Trump calls it, calls it a witch hunt, but if you don't want a witch hunt, you shouldn't put on a black hat and ride around on a broom with your cat, right, at midnight by the full moon. I mean, he's the one who hired somebody who was on the Russian payroll to write his first policy speech. He was the one who hired someone on the Russian payroll to be his Russia advisor. He was the one who hired someone on a Russian payroll to be his main foreign policy advisor, Mr. Flynn. He was the one who hired someone who had pitched uh, Mr. Putin the idea of weakening American democracy as his campaign manager. That's Paul Manafort. You know, it, it, and then Jared Kushner lies about his contacts with the Russians, and so on and so on and so on. Um, Mr. Trump is the one who chose, as a real estate developer, to be, for the last decade to be borrowing money from, from mysterious Russian connections. That has nothing to do with you and me or the Americans. Mr. Trump made all those choices himself. So there are a lot of facts there, and those are just the things in the public realm. So I see, I see the Mueller as basically um, this, this, this collision between fact and fiction, because Mr. Trump wants us to believe the fiction that there's nothing there. There's clearly something there, right? And it's only someone who cares about facts who's going to bring that out. I'd, I'd like to think that Mr. Mueller is that person. And I think harm to democracy is not necessarily in such a dramatic way as this international Russian collusion with elections, but it can occur in more cynical and deceitful ways. For example, Trump's voter fraud commission, when there are only four documented cases of voter fraud in 2016, many see as a route for voter suppression. People like Jeff Sessions, who has a record indicating racial animus, could enforce legally more difficult requirements for the eligibility to vote. And this basically would secure power with the current party by creating burdensome legal requirements for people who are, for example, poor, disadvantaged, or have language barriers, making it harder for them to vote. How can people fight against an assault against democracy performed under the color of law? Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's that's clearly happening. One can give other examples. I mean, what, what they're the Republicans in, in general, and Mr. Trump in particular, don't have anything like a majority. They have a lot of support, but not a majority. So the, the way to have an effective majority is to get the right people to vote in the right places at the right times, um, which means excluding minorities, basically. And Mr. Sessions has been very enthusiastic about things like minimum sentences, um, which, of course, keep people from voting. He's been very enthusiastic about deportation. He's, he's been very enthusiastic as, about a, on a whole range of, of, of issues where, you know, he won't put it in quite these terms, but clearly the effect is to keep people with black and brown skin from being full members of, 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 of the political society. 
so that that's clearly going on um and the whole you know gerrymandering is obviously you didn't mention it but gerrymandering is designed precisely this way and, and it also means that we're not really a democracy if a, if, a, if a democrat in ohio has a vote that counts for one half as much as a republican in ohio which is the case now um that's not <laughs> really a democracy so yeah what can you do about it okay well um the, the the those rules are not all made at the federal level. Gerrymandering happens at the level of the state house. So people who don't like gerrymandering or people who want to, who want to, who want to affect election rules should be running for local and then for state office. They should be trying to get control of state houses. They should be starting on the ground where they live rather than just worrying about the attorney general. We can't do anything about the attorney general right now, but you can actually within the law um, have a big influence. I mean, or to put it a different way, if we rerun back thirty years. The reason why the Republicans are in power now, or one of them, is that they had a long-term plan which involved getting control of local and state offices. And and they had to have that plan because they don't have a national majority. and They probably never will, at least I mean, unless they, the country radically changes somehow. The Democrats didn't have any such plan. And I say this without being a partisan. I just think, I think we should have a democracy where we have one person and one vote. And I also think we should have a two-party system where the two parties can compete on equal terms. I think people often find reassurances in relying on the concept of the durability of our institutions. But in chapter two, titled Defend Institutions, you wrote, it is institutions that help us preserve decency. They need our help as well. Do not speak of our institutions unless you make them yours by acting on their behalf. Institutions do not protect themselves. They fall one after the other unless each is defended from the beginning. So choose an institution you care about, a court, a newspaper, a law, a labor union, and take its side. Can you explain how institutions are only as strong as the people whom they are created to protect? <laughs> well, the question, in a way, in a way answers itself. It, it's a little bit like the American exceptionalism and the it can't happen here. Um, I, I know this was already happening a few days after the election. People were already saying, oh, the institutions will protect us. And... As a historian and as an observer of contemporary authoritarianism, I, I find that reflex very suspicious because the way authoritarianism very very often works is that it picks off institutions one at a time. So, um, if if you are um, if you are if if you're Hitler coming to power, the first thing you pick off um, after the Reichstag fire are the opposition parties, and then you go after other things once there are no real opposition parties. Uh, you know, you get to the army later on. You go, you go through it in a sequence. It doesn't have to all happen at once. The communists who came to power in the 1940s in Eastern Europe called it salami tactics when they would first remove the most extreme opposition and then move to the next opposition, the next opposition. You don't have to do it all at once. They, they don't, you don't have to have magical power yet. You just have to go in a logical sequence. And what's that? what that means is that that first cut or that first moment of oppression is the place you have to react. This is also true for modern authoritarianism. So, after you know, after 1989, the basic idea in, in, in a big part of, of the Western world uh, was to imitate a system where there were checks and balances. And so authoritarians, authoritarians understand this logic, even if we sometimes forget it, and so they go after one of the major institutions, very often the Supreme Court. So if you, get, if you can get the Supreme Court, um, then the parliament has less meaning, then you can go after the parliament later on. So I, my basic idea was to stop, was just to stop people from thinking the institutions are, 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 are robots, right? You know that they're like transformers who are going to come out of the sky and like land on Earth and protect us. And you know the, insti- the institutions are vulnerable 
in all, for, to all kinds of things. They're vulnerable to fear, they're vulnerable to coercion, they're vulnerable to groupthink, um, and they're certainly they're more vulnerable when, they, when people in the institutions um, feel that the larger civil society doesn't care about them. And that's one of the reasons why protest and why, why local action is so important, because it means that uh, judges sitting on a court or civil servants working in, 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 um, in, a, in a cabinet position or whatever it might be are, are aware that there's a certain resonance to what they do or, or, or don't do. To our listeners, another way you can help keep our democracy strong is to discuss with your friends ideas that you hear from this conversation with Yale history professor Timothy Snyder. He's the author of the bestseller On Tyranny and our guest on Law, Life, and Culture on WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven. So let's talk about a second group of people. There are others who are not particularly mean-spirited and voted for Trump, some feel any comparison to Nazi Germany is alarming, but still too exaggerated, as most people don't think the U.S. would ever set up concentration camps where people are murdered en masse. Some people in this group often do not even particularly like Donald Trump, but followed the hashtag anyone but Hillary. What thoughts would you like to share with people who might not agree with Trump, but still support him and see the probe into Russian interference with the 2016 election as a left-wing political liberal conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the first thing to say is that I, I'm I'm not here to tell people how they should think. You know, the book the book begins precisely with with the idea, um, with the recommendation precisely that you have to think for yourself. If you think for yourself, you've got a chance. If you think what everyone else is thinking, you don't have a chance. Um, and it, it takes it, and it takes a certain amount of work and a certain amount of self criticism and reflection to realize the difference. So, the, it, lesson one is is don't obey in advance for a reason. Um, don't obey in advance means don't go along, not with what you're being ordered to do, but with the general drift, right? And part of the general drift in the society now is to be suspicious of the media and to use the phrase mainstream media and to be suspicious of the facts and and to and to shrug your shoulders and to say who knows and say maybe that's a conspiracy right that's part of the drift if you go along with that if you go along for example this idea that the russia thing is just is, is just made up and all the facts are somehow made up you're just drifting frankly and you got to check yourself you got to get you have to get your mind out of whatever circles you're in which suggests that and try to piece it together for yourself i mean you have to ask yourself the question if you're an American, right? If you're an American citizen, you're concerned about the fate of your country, which you don't have to be, but if you are, you have to ask the question, is it possible that the, United, that the current president of the United States of America is a traitor? Is it possible that the current president of the United States of America would not be present had it not been for the aid of a foreign power? And then you have to evaluate what the facts are. And the facts are, frankly, abundant. Um, it's, we, we went over them before in this, in this, in this, in this broadcast, so I'm not, I'm not going to repeat them, but... I think the, rather than seeing it, I guess here's the crucial thing. People who think that we are talking about, they think this way. They say, okay, if it were the, the idea that Mr. Trump cooperated with the Russians is bad for Mr. Trump. Therefore, that idea must have been made up by his enemies. Therefore, I'm against it. If you're thinking like that, then you're just thinking with the group. You're, just, you're not thinking, in fact. You're just going along with some flow or other. It, it, what has to intrude are the facts. You have to say, okay, I'm going to ask this question myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to think about it, I'm going to answer it in a way which may or may not be in alignment with whatever media I happen to be reading or whatever my friends happen to be saying, and certainly not with what the president is saying himself, right? I mean, if you're just going along with what the president is saying himself, then, you, then you're lost, because that's, 
that's the very last thing that anyone should be doing. You know, just yesterday on Twitter, Donald Trump referred to the investigation into the Russian connections to his campaign as, quote, the single greatest witch hunt of a politician in American history, exclamation point. And he received over 100,000 likes in support of that tweet. Can you comment on the state of our country that how did that happen? Are just not enough people looking at the facts? I mean, it'd be really hard for me to say. First of all, I don't think 100,000 is very many likes. I'm just going to like say a little digital thing here. If you've got 20 million followers or whatever you have, 100,000 likes is actually not that many, right? So it's not actually that big of a number. But but why why 100,000 people would like it? I think a, a certain amount of people like whatever whatever he says. Um, but the, the, I guess that goes to, the your, your real question goes to why it's important for people to be able to think historically. Because... If if there's if history starts every morning anew, then yeah, it's the greatest witch hunt ever because there've never been any witch hunts because history started this morning, right? I mean, if that's the way we think about the world, then sure, why not? But if we think a little bit about American history and think about presidents who were, for example, assassinated, it starts to seem a little bit silly. If we think about African American politicians who were physically beaten, it starts to seem a little bit silly, right? If we think of all the abuse that Abraham Lincoln put up with while he was trying to hold the republic together, right? And at the end of it, he was assassinated. If we think of that, it seems utterly ridiculous. The only way that those things make sense is for us not to think historically, is for us to just accept the the feeling of the moment as being the only thing that counts. And so it's it's really just an, it's an example of how history can can rescue us because it gives us it gives us it gives us that tool which we can think with um, when our leaders hit us up with nonsense like that. Now, I don't mean to keep beating a dead horse with this, but I do think it is um, helpful for you to amplify on the state that this country is finding itself in. And with this group, I've seen multiple times a quote circulating on Facebook well before Rex Tillerson repeated it, saying, Donald Trump is the leader of our country. Wishing or trying to make him fail is like doing the same to the pilot of a plane you're flying on and will kill us all. But then they will also say, if you want to work on the issues to find the best outcome for the given situation, I am all with you. So if Trump survives this investigation, is there a way of working with this administration or is continued opposition the only way we can defend the institutions and rule of law that make up our democracy? Okay, I got, I got to start with that metaphor of the plane. So I guess the, the first thing to say about the metaphor of the plane and the president of the pilot is would if you inserted the words Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, would the same people believe it, right? That's, that's my question. Because, you know, the, the, the people who say, oh, okay, there's a leader. But very often the same people who want us to believe that everything Mr. Trump does is right, I'll believe that everything Mr. Obama did was wrong. So I think like if you, if you accept this little metaphor, which I'm going to say in a moment why no one should, um, you should try it on yourself if the president were Hillary Clinton or the president were Barack Obama. Now, there's a big problem with the metaphor. Um, and then there's a bigger problem with the metaphor. The big problem with the metaphor is that if Donald Trump were the pilot, the plane would still be on the ground, right? I mean, if, Donald, if you imagine Donald Trump sitting in the cockpit of an airplane, it's possible that he could figure out how to use the microphone, right? And that he would maybe go down the aisle in glad hand. But the idea that Donald Trump who could actually get an airplane off the ground, 
is impossible to imagine, right? The man doesn't have technical skills of any kind. And this is relevant because we're supposed to be, if you accept the metaphor, we're supposed to be imagining that the, Amer- the American Republic, the government is actually soaring through the air at great speed, everything's working. But it's not. It's not. It's just not working. Whatever you think about the ideology, I mean, we, we, don't, have, we don't have civil servants where they need to be. Our, our, our foreign policy is a total conundrum to everybody. Um, we've never been weaker in the world, um, at least not since the 1930s, right? This is, so the plane is not flying through the air. The, the, the metaphor doesn't work that way. But there's a, that's the big problem. The bigger problem is, though, the metaphor itself. Uh, the United States of America is not an airplane, and um, the, the, the president is not a pilot. And um, it's not just that it's literally wrong. It's that what it asks you to think about is, frankly, fascist. Okay, now here's why. A situation where we're just passengers and the pilot's flying the, pl- pilot's flying, pilot's flying the plane, yeah, that's a situation in which we have nothing to say and the pilot has everything to say. But that's not civic life in a democracy. That's fascism. Where there's a leader and only the leader has power, that's fascism. And it's fascism in a different way, which is that what you're being asked to think about is a state of emergency. Sure, if we're flying in a plane that only one guy knows how to fly the plane and we're all 70,000 feet above the air, above the ground, that's an emergency. And so you're being asked to imagine, okay, political life is an emergency all the time, and therefore you have to trust your leader. That's fascism, right? So that, that, the metaphor has to be thought through. You can't just say, oh, yes, it's like a pilot, you know, it's like a pilot in a plane, and then accept and say yes or no. No, if you're thinking that way, then you have taken a big step towards wanting an authoritarian regime. And I, I mean you, Rex Tillerson, and anyone else who's circulating this, because you know, frankly, that way of thinking about the world is is com- is completely absurd and ridiculous. I think back to Group One. Many people in that frame of mind see policies in the executive orders and actions of this administration as counter to the post World War II articulated values that, for a long time, feel defined our identity as a nation. But Group Two also feels this way in another direction. So they are clearly getting their information from different sources, or there would not be such firmly held, widely divergent opinions. How can you reach people whose information diet is Fox News and their conservative circle of friends on Twitter and Facebook? And what can you say to bridge this gap, at least in one way, and convince Group 2 to read and think about your book on tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century? Well, first of all, it's not, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you're asking me the question this way, but it's not, as you know, American opinion is not divided between group one and group two. There is a spectrum. So, I mean, if you're asking me, I hear from Republicans all the time, including more and more from Trump voters. Um, and, you know, sometimes they don't want, you know, sometimes I hear from Republican elected officials um, who would prefer that I not say who they are, so I won't. But it's a spectrum, and there are plenty of there are plenty of people who are consider themselves independent or Republicans who are critical of Mr. Trump um, for various reasons, even if they don't agree with me about all kinds of, of other things. So I just want to be clear about that, but because it's it's important, I don't I don't think we're so far along, although we're getting there, unfortunately. That you know, some one group one is in this silo, and group two is in this silo. It's still possible to get to get across. There still are some intermediaries, but the main answer to your question has to do with the lessons in the book itself. It's not that like Tim Snyder is going to go out and convince people. It's that we have to rethink a little bit how we communicate. So with respect to, the, to, to news sources, it would be a good thing, not for Republicans, not for Democrats, but for Americans, 
to spend more time with reportage that's actually been done by reporters and less time with stuff that's just made up and passed around. And it's actually a pretty simple criterion. I mean, if you have a legal problem, you go to a lawyer. You don't just go to some guy on the street corner who's, who, who starts talking about the law. If you have a plumbing problem, you go to a plumber. You don't just go to somebody who knows how to drink a glass of water. But with the news, we've gotten into the habit of just listening to whatever. And, and it would be better for all of us if we didn't do that. So some of the things the book recommends are make get to know individual reporters. Not their politics, but get to know the fact that they travel and that they actually investigate and then read them. And when you use the internet, pass on things from people who have actually traveled and researched and don't pass on other things. Subscribe to newspapers, because if you subscribe to newspapers, you're giving them a chance to actually do the work they need to do. And then talk to other people. Part of the problem is the internet itself. The internet itself does tend to polarize. And again, regardless of your politics, if you exchange views in person, it's much harder to have extreme views, and it's much harder to see your opponent as not really being a citizen or, or even a, a human being. So, I mean, I try to practice what I preach here, and I think it does have a certain, it does have a certain effect. Um, but, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, people have to take responsibility for themselves, and taking responsibility for yourself includes also what, what you're consuming, you know, what you, what you choose to take in through your eyes and into your brain. If you just think that you know whatever you're looking at happens to be correct, then you've got a problem. How do you respond to the argument that the current administration is carrying out what Trump had promised to do and he won the election? So what many people oppose as assaults on the Constitution, the ban against Muslims based on religion, the wall on the Mexico border, and taking away health insurance of millions of people— that was what people voted to support in our democracy. People may say voters were manipulated and not well-informed, but these were the results. How do we best respond while having the desire to still be a morally responsible, ethical uh, participants in civic life within a democracy? And there are two different sets of issues here. So one is fulfilling promises. In Mr. Trump's case, that's very hard to say because he tends to promise things that are inchoate and, and, and hard to define. Some of the clearest promises clearly will not be fulfilled. He's not going to imprison Hillary Clinton. He's not going to build a wall. Um, the things that he's, he, he most wanted us to remember in 2016, he most wants us to forget in 2017. And then some of it's, you know, it's, it's ambiguous at best. Like with healthcare, he said, he must have said it a hundred times, repeal and replace. But, but what does replace mean i mean what replacing is going to end up meaning if it means anything is is taking health care away from people so it's not clear that that's fulfilling a, a, a promise i mean when i look at the when i look at the, the the body of what is being proposed with legislation i actually don't really see anything positive i just see things that are that involve pulling things away from people in the case of healthcare, things that people need but sure i mean you could say a lots lots of republicans maybe Maybe the most most of the Republicans who voted for him or his his electorate wanted their own health care taken away. That's 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 very possible. That's one issue, and I think it's perfectly legitimate legitimate for the president and the House and the Senate to come up with legislation and pass it, so long as they're willing to take the electoral consequences. Um, with the Constitution, it's a different issue. So the Muslim ban, you know, was found by a whole series of judges to be illegal. Um, that's that's a different question. I mean, the president can promise many things, but he can't. What he, what he has to his, if his promises are illegal or unconstitutional, then he ought not to fulfill them. It's not, it's not part of our system that 
elect being elected means you can break the law. Um, the, the law comes before the government. The law becomes comes before the man in in power. So in cases where he's promising things that are illegal, of course it's right it's right to resist. Um, and and on on constitutional grounds, on on civic grounds. I mean, there, it may not I mean, you may not like a Muslim ban, but you may think it's illegal. You might secretly like it. But also think that it's illegal, right? It's it's the illegal part, which is which is different from the policy part. But I mean, for me, it's still the the fundamental question here is who who are we actually dealing with? I mean, the fundamental campaign promise was that he was going to be president of the United States. Until we clear up the Russia business, it's not actually clear that that's his main constituency. I mean, my own opinion is that he never cared about Americans. He has no notion of the American interest, and he'd be happy to have a weak shuddering, collapsing America, um, so long as people named Trump and their immediate relatives are doing better. I, there's nothing in his behavior which suggests to me that anything like that, anything is, you know, there's anything different from that going on. Um, but that's just my opinion. There's a much larger question here, which is that, is he actually, is he actually himself thinking about the White House mostly, or is he actually himself thinking about the Kremlin mostly? And, and I, I mean, his own supporters now generally don't believe the Russia story. Okay, what if it's true? It seems to me that then, which it is, <laughs> most likely, um, what if it's true? What does that say about all the campaign promises? Because he promised he would be an American governing for Americans. That's the sort of basic campaign promise. What if that promise isn't true, which I'm afraid it probably isn't? You know, and I do recognize, as you uh, articulated earlier that there is a spectrum of views and the division into group one and group two was basically a simplistic analogy based on conversations that I've had sure. with other people. So based on that, um, just these conversations that I've had, I think there is a very painful gap in the intransigence of people's politics that from each perspective is equally convinced that the other is defying reason. And you did talk about, you know, sorting through facts and um, making sure your sources are legitimate in conveying information and accepting information. But how do we really get over this gap in trying to meet a common ground when opposing sides do seem to face some impenetrable barriers? Yeah, I mean, it's natural that people disagree, and the whole the whole system is set up to manage disagreement. That's the whole point of the system. The system it, the system assumes that there will be a plurality of opinions based upon a plurality of convictions and a plurality of interests, and that's totally normal. and 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 it's actually meant to be the virtue of the system that 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 we can continue to go through our day to day lives and and be free, um, and and hopefully improve our situations without having to run into insuperable conflicts with other citizens. That's the way America is supposed to work. That's normal. For me, the issue isn't about um, precisely about, you know, facts. Like you you would, okay, so you could know some things and I could know other things, um, and then we could learn from each other. But if you say to me there are no facts, then we have a problem. So the, the test is not, you know, can we learn from one another? There, there are plenty of things I can learn from, um, you know, I, I can learn from people who support Trump who have expertise in their own areas, right? Um, that That's not the issue. The issue is who is actually against facts and who's for them, which is something else, right? So, and, and here we have something very specific. You will not find, I mean, the Hillary Clinton campaign had many problems uh, and many shortcomings, but you will not find Hillary Clinton saying, I'm not sure that there's a reality or I'm not sure that there are facts. 
Whereas with, with Mr. Trump, it's not just that most of the things that he said were factually incorrect. It's that he, he deliberately attacks the people whose job it is to produce the factuality. That is the journalists or what he calls, or what he calls the media. Um, it's Kellyanne Conway who talks about, talks about alternative facts, right? Um, it's, 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 and that's the thing you have to watch out for. That's not about right and left anymore. And it's not even about political preferences. It's about when your leaders tell you there's no factual reality, then you should watch out because you're being set up to be fooled. You're being set up to be skinned. I mean, you're being set up to be ex- exploited. And you're being set up to be used because if you accept the, the if you accept that there's no facts, there are no facts. Then if the moment ever comes when you want to change your mind, you won't know what to believe. You won't know with whom to align. You won't know whom to trust. You won't know what to read. Because you've already, you've already taken that first step into no fact land, which means you just keep sliding, 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 sliding down. When you go into no fact land, you're, dis, you're, 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 you're choosing as a citizen to disempower yourself. Um, because a citizen is somebody who says, I, I have my own things I care about, I have my own interests, and I'm going to figure it out for myself. But somebody who likes authoritarianism is somebody who says, well, I don't know what's true and there's probably no truth anyway, but I want to be told what I want to hear. And once you accept that, then you then it's very hard to make your way back. Now I think your question was about how we how we how we get over this and my answer is the way to get over it is for us to recognize that there is such thing as a factual world out there in the United States. We can disagree, we can learn from each other. The real danger starts and this is again this is something that we can get from other countries and from history. Um, the danger starts when a certain political party or a certain elite group says there isn't reality. The fascists did that. The communists did that. The contemporary postmodern authoritarians in Russia and elsewhere, they all do that. So if you find yourself making that move, if you find yourself supporting somebody who says there isn't really factual reality and the journalists are the enemy, then then you have a problem. And it's not a partisan problem. It's a problem with the nature of the system. Your book is worth reading and rereading due to its constant applicability to the ongoing news. For example, last weekend, a sizable group carrying burning fire torches gathered at Lee Park in Charlottesville, Virginia, to protest the city council's decision to sell the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. They were chanting, Russia is our friend, blood and soil, and most disturbingly, you will not replace us. The mayor of the city recognized the event as either profoundly ignorant or designed to intimidate minority groups by echoing tactics of the Ku Klux Klan. Fortunately, in this instance, the police dispersed this group. But you have a chapter, Be Wary of Paramilitaries. Can you give an example of its applicability as illustrative of how lessons in history, make your case for the current situations we face in almost every news cycle we are witnessing. Okay, so beware of paramilitaries. Um, the, the main, the, 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 the specific example would be fascism and, 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 and Nazi Germany. The way that you come to power as a fascist is that you have some group, let's call them brown shirts, who take over the public sphere by intimidating people and who are able to influence elections by changing the political atmosphere. And then once you're in power, they, they help you sideline opponents. Um, that, that changes the nature of government, because then it's no, longer gov- it's no longer government by law, it's a government by atmosphere, it's a government by intimidation. What, how, how is that relevant today? How could that possibly be relevant? Well, Adolf Hitler's brown shirts, precisely, a group called the SA, started out as, as his private security detail at his rallies. And what did they do? 
um, Hitler pointed the people and, and they threw they threw them out of the gallery. If you're a historian, you just can't you can't watch the Trump videos and not think of that because it was precisely Trump's private security detail led by Mr. Schiller, which did exactly that. And then Mr. Trump, um, frankly, even more than Hitler, reacted with glee and pleasure about the physical intimidation involved. And then Mr. Schiller is then, and this, this struck me, and I think I'm the only person who is, who's obsessed with this, but I, I could be right. Um, you know, then it's mis- when, when Mr. Comey is fired, there are a lot of odd and, and terrible things about this, the circumstances of Mr. Comey's firing, but one of them struck me, and that is, who did the firing? Precisely Mr. Schiller. Um, so you have, you have the head of Mr. Trump's private security detail, right, going to the head of a law enforcement office and saying, I'm going to fire you. So this is the, so of, of course we're not there yet. I mean, but this is the kind of thing which one has to watch out for, that a, an informal, you know, frankly, a little bit racially based group of people starts to supplant or replace or get the upper hand on the real policeman whose job it is to understand and enforce the law. We're not there yet, but the, but the things that Mr. Trump does suggest that he sees that as normal. You know, and in my hypothetical, um, I know it's simplistic and breaking the population down, but um, with what I see as group three, I think there are Steve Bannon's major donors of the Trump campaign, perhaps even small business owners who stand to gain with a 15% corporate tax rate instead of a 35% one, people who actually do directly financially benefit from the current administration's governance. Can they learn something from your book to alter their political views? That's up, you know, that that's up to them. I'm not, I try to start from a, the broadest possible place, which is the the framers of the Constitution, since I assume that most people, most politically thoughtful people anyway, will will have some respect for what the framers thought. And that the framers were fundamentally skeptical about human nature. They weren't American exceptionalists. On the contrary, they couldn't be, there was no America. On the contrary, they they were they were very concerned that a generation or two in the republic would collapse. I think from their point of view, we probably have gotten lucky a whole a whole number of times. You know, they 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 thought they they were trying to take into account the possibility that a bad leader would come to power at some point. Um, they were worried that there would be some kind of act of what we now call terrorism. Um, Madison referred to it as a favorable emergency, which would allow um, a tyrant to take over the government. This is how they saw things. They were trying to build in a bunch of a bunch of safeguards. I, I'm I'm proceeding from from that starting point that one should be skeptical of authority that one should one should support the institutions that the United States is not about a particular person but about but about a certain set of rules and that when we get away from that we're putting ourselves in danger. I don't take that to be right or left or Republican or Democrat. I take that to be a basic American tradition. And so I like to think that if we start there, um, we can go along at least part of the way to, together. But I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to convince everyone about any particular point. Um, what I guess what I am what I am sure is true is that all of us, whatever our momentary convictions are, can get a deeper sense of reality um, and, and and a richer sense of the possibility of our own action if we think historically. And I would stress, by the way, that like that's an essentially conservative point. And 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 one of the things which concerns me and which I find strange about a lot of the movement in the American right now is the casting away precisely of history, the casting away of tradition, and the emphasis on, on, on feelings and the emphasis on the moment. That, that worries me. 
But there's a lot of wisdom and insight in your book, and we're running out of time. But I'd like to end our interview with my asking you either to read or reference one particularly favorite or strong section from your book that you would like our listeners to hear or think about or remember. Well, if you brought the book, I'll read something from it. Or if you just want to underscore a state uh, point of it that was maybe one some something that you'd like people to truly take with them. Well, at the, at the moment that we're, we, we've talked through, I mean, along the way, several of the lessons, number one, don't obey in advance. Number two, defend institutions. Um, you, you mentioned, incidentally, number three, which is beware the one-party state. Number four, be, be concerned or, or take care of the face of the world. Um, we talked through, in a way, numbers 9, 10, 11, which have to do with um, taking care of the language, believing in truth, and investigating. So maybe I'll close with 17, 18, 19, and 20, which are about the Reichstag fire scenario, which we, we, we referred to, but we didn't really develop the, the, the mechanism by which modern tyrants will take a flawed republic like our own and transform it into a beginning authoritarian state is terrorism. Um, modern tyranny and terrorism are, are not enemies. They're actually in a kind of reciprocal relationship. Modern tyranny needs a certain amount of terrorism to arise and to thrive. In Hitler's case, it was the Reichstag fire. In the case of contemporary Russia, it, were, it was some faked terrorist incidents in 1999. So, Precisely now, when A, the Trump administration is obviously faltering, and B, when the Republican majorities in the House and Senate don't really have very many popular policies, at at this particular moment, I think one ought to be concerned about a foreign war or a terrorist action, which is designed to change the rules of politics. Um, It's unfortunately the case that it's it's probable that at least one or the other of those things is going to happen um, in the near future. And it's very crucial that when it does happen, we recognize that there's a politics to all of this, that of course we're going to be afraid, of course we're going to, we're, we're going to grieve, but that despite our fear and our grief, we have to remember the politics and remember that it's just at these moments when we have to defend our rights. It's just at these moments when we have to say, no, we're not going to trade our real freedom for fake safety. Because once you do that, once you accept the logic of the terrorist attack or of the foreign war and you say, oh yes, a state of emergency is acceptable, it's very hard to get back out of that state of emergency. So for me right now, those are probably the most important lessons. I'm, I'm very concerned about some kind of scenario like that. And I think if, insofar as we're aware of the politics of that, it's less likely to happen. Thank you, Yale University history professor Timothy Snyder, an author of the best-selling book on tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. My pleasure. Timothy Snyder will be a speaker at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven. He will be at the Yale Center for British Art, 1080 Chapel Street, on Tuesday, June 13th at 5.30 p.m. His talk will be free, but seating is limited with first-come, first-seated availability. To our listeners, We appreciate your joining us on Law, Life, and Culture at New Haven's WNHH 103.5 FM. I'm Betsy Kim.